Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third series of the Thinking Commercially podcast, the business podcast for students and recent graduates with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we are going to do an application slash start of the working world special. Lots of guests, the brilliant Chris, and everything you need to know ahead of the application season or if you're about to start in the working world. Enjoy. Welcome, Chris. How are you doing today? Very well indeed. Thank you very much, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Had a really nice summer. It's been a very strange summer, very hot, um, lots of different events um, going on um, at the same time. But it's uh, it's been nice to have a, a bit of a break. Um, but we're back with uh, series three of the podcast. And I think, to be honest with you, when we were sitting there in the second lockdown, I think the November lockdown, when we first uh, did the podcast, record the first episode, I don't think, Chris, we were expecting to be here uh, a couple of years later, starting the third series. Really looking forward to getting this started. Um, if you haven't already, if you are a regular listener to to the podcast, I'm sure you'll have checked out our Instagram and LinkedIn. Go to Thinking Commercially on both of those channels and you get lots of insights and lots of advice around the podcast as well. So typically what we do, if you're a first-time listener, we look at three to four stories which are in the business news at the moment and look at the general trends and themes around the business world and give you lots of great nuggets that you can take into interviews, applications, when you start in the working world and just generally build your knowledge. However, today, as it is a special, as we are starting series three, what we're going to do is really, really focus in on your applications. If you're doing applications, it is September. A lot of graduate schemes do open up and do check out Bright Network um, for all your graduate schemes, internships and everything like that. Um, But also a lot of people are starting in the working world in September. It typically is when graduate schemes start and people who've left university this year would have left about three months ago. So about the right time where they'll be starting. So there'll be lots of great information for you as well. Chris, what I realised, and we were chatting over, over the summer, we actually uh, went to watch a bit of cricket together, which was, uh, which was an absolute um, delight. Um, but what I realised is that we've done 19 episodes of this podcast, and we still haven't actually defined what commercial awareness actually is. And given you are the guru of commercial awareness, <laughs> I thought, because we're doing this application special, could you give us sort of a, a two to three line definition of what you see commercial awareness as. Absolutely, Ben. I mean, commercial awareness is, it's obviously about business, Um, but I actually see it as being about business from two points of view. Well, one is, um, and this is particularly relevant uh, to listeners who are going to be applying to organizations that have commercial customers, commercial clients. So it's understanding business so that you can understand the clients of the organization that you want to be employed by. So that, that's the fairly obvious aspect of it. But I think there is another aspect of commercial awareness, which people don't necessarily focus on. That is understanding your prospective employer as a business and understanding your role in that business. So it's only by understanding business generally that you can see what contribution you can and might be expected to make 
by your prospective employer. So it's business from two points of view, business generally, but also the business of the organization that you're applying to. Amazing. We definitely should have done that in the first episode, but we've done it now. So hopefully uh, at home, you've got a good sense before we do this application special. There's two things that we want uh, to do today. Um, so Chris will be giving insights from his brilliant book, All You Need to Know About the City, and helping you really understand the plumbing of the city businesses and really helping you understand the businesses that you will be applying to that kind of first starting point before you get your applications in and then we'll be joined by both Jake Shogger and Hannah Sultan both friends of the podcast friends of Bright Network who will be giving their top application tips for you at home so get your notebooks out get your pens ready you'll be making lots of notes in in this one or if you're just in the park having a walk just listening try and take as much in because there's brilliant insights coming your way Let's get started. So the starting point with this section of the podcast is what do students need to know about business before they start their applications? Well, the the usual misconception about business is that it's just about profit. It's about making money. Uh, and actually, it isn't. What it's really about is, is innovation. And for me, the light bulb came on when I realized that um, everything we want or need in the world, by and large, is produced by business. Not, not possibly the big conceptual things like health or defense or education, although those things which we generally look to government to provide, government will call upon businesses to help them provide. But basically everything else, if you look around you, if you look at everything you use in your life, it's provided by business. And so business is actually about innovation and competition. So if as a business, you've got a great idea um, and you're obviously successful at it, you're making money out of it, then you will get competitors who want to do the same sort of thing without, without infringing your intellectual property rights. They'll find other ways of improving upon the goods or services that, that you provide, or if not improving the quality, then reducing the cost. So business, I think the first thing to get clear in your mind is business is actually about innovation. It's about change. It helps change the world around us generally for the better. Amazing. And there's always this sort of phrase coined that it's best to be second to market. A little bit what you talked about uh, there, Chris, and that um, if you're first to market often with a brilliant new idea, um, you typically make mistakes because you're the first person to ever do it. So people always kind of hark back to this idea that it's best to be second to market because you can learn from all the mistakes that the first person made. Um, and then what has been innovated becomes an actual proper business where they can make profit and they've got the know-how to really succeed. Chris, what I wanted to talk through was that everyone talks about businesses are customer or consumer centric. What are they talking about? Is this linked to this idea of innovation? It, it is because um, it's interesting, just going back to what you were saying there about not wanting to be the first mover, as it were. If, if you are the first mover, one of the difficulties is actually convincing people that your product or service is something that they need. Um, and so uh, you have to spend a lot of money in marketing to get ideas across. Whereas once once basically consumers are used to the idea of whatever it is you, you produce, then they're much more likely just to buy it without thinking about it. Um, but to, to, to go back to, to that point, uh, customer centricity 
is actually really, really important because you can't just provide a good or a service in a vacuum, just hoping that people will like it. Or you might try to do that, but businesses that are successful understand why it is that people or other businesses will want their, their product or service. And so in, in a sense, there, 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 there are two ways of looking at this. What I am producing and making it as good as possible and the recipient of that, what is it that they, they actually need? And very good definition of marketing or business development is, is um, meeting clients' needs profitably. So it's putting the client's needs right at the heart of what you're doing and then ensuring that, that you make a profit in providing the good or service, basically so you can stay in business till the next day in order to provide that good or, or service again. Perfect. So going back to innovation and kind of the foundations of businesses, what are the key starting points? Well, at heart, what you need to develop is what's called a USP, a unique selling proposition. It's something that makes you different from whatever any other business is, is providing. And backing that up, you need a strategy. And, and as, I, I mean, there, there are whole uh, libraries devoted to what business strategy is. But essentially, business strategy is just a plan. The, the trouble being in business is that there's no shortage of ideas. What there is shortage of is resource, whether it's time or people or money. So businesses are always having to prioritize. And a strategy is a plan that prioritizes. It says, well, we could do a number of things to create or support our USP, our unique uh, selling proposition. But what we're actually going to focus on is this, this or these two or three priorities are where we're going to de devote our resource. So I think of business as being about innovation, about having a USP and having an underlying strategy so that you can gain what's called uh, sustainable competitive advantage. For example, it's no good creating a product that is so expensive, nobody wants to buy it or creating a product that takes so long to make that, that, that people have forgotten about it by the time it, it's, it's, it's produced. So you've got to be, or for that matter, uh, producing a product that you sell uh, at, at such a discount that you can't make profit out of it. So sustainable competitive advantage is, is about creating a USP that through an effective strategy, you can support uh, indefinitely. Amazing. So it feels to me like before an application, key starting point is to understand um, what service they're providing or product they're providing to their customer, understand what the unique selling proposition is for that, and sort of understanding the high level strategy um, within the business, what they're aiming to achieve. Those all seem um, reasonably simple, but def definitely takes a little bit of delving, maybe beyond sort of the recruitment page or their social media as well, and really kind of getting your, your mind thinking about, about commercial awareness. Um, but Chris, maybe this is quite a, a tricky question, and hopefully you can um, shed some insight on it. On face value, whether it's in the law sector, whether it's the accountancy sector, any sector, often big businesses can look quite similar a little bit like the, the big four or sort of big law firms. So how do you find or find out what their USP is compared to their competitors when it maybe doesn't look immediately obvious on the surface? 
That's a really interesting question, and it's particularly germane to uh, PSFs, professional service firms. Um, it's much easier when you're looking at a manufacturer to look at it, the goods it produces and to see where they are better than competitors' goods. But when you're talking about professional services, it, it's, it's much harder. And here, I, I look to somebody called Professor Stephen Mason, who uh, has written extensively. He's a, a leading uh, law firm management guru, both in the UK and internationally. And he's written extensively about uh, professional service firm strategy. And one of the things that uh, he spent a lot of time thinking about was, uh, and this is going back 20 odd years, why is it that, and he was looking in particular at big law firms, why is it that big law firms seem to do similar sorts of work for similar sorts of client? How, how, how can they do that? What is it that differentiates them if their US speed seems to be very similar? And he, he concluded by saying that it was something that he called normative strategy. And by normative, he meant norms. What, what are, what are the, the, the norms of the business, the underlying principles of the business? And the way you can translate that into something that, that you, you, you can actually see is, because I know about law firms most, that's what I'll, I'll talk about in this context, you can go around the top 20 law firms in the world and they will all feel different when you go inside them. The decor will be different. The way people behave will be different. They'll have a different feeling to them. And that's a reflection of their culture, which was defined by McKinsey, the management consultants, as the way we do things around here. It's as simple as that. And what Stephen Mason essentially said was, this thing that makes them feel different, this culture is their normative strategy. Because ultimately, the reason why clients keep on going back to particular professional service firms is because they like the people in them and they like the values that they represent. So in terms of professional service firms, when it's far more difficult to spot what the USP is, yes, there are some that major on sector expertise, for example, but when it's difficult to differentiate one from another, the way they differentiate themselves is by culture, and that's why they attract different types of client. It, it's, it's the feel of the place, and, and now, post-COVID with any luck, when you go into these firms for, for interview, you can actually feel that. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is, I've always believed that if you've got competing offers from comparable firms, the way to decide between them is, where do you think you would feel most at home? It's a feel thing, not a think thing. And that's a reflection of the culture, the normative strategy of the particular firm. Yeah, that's a really interesting and really good breakdown there, Chris. So thank you very much for that. Moving on slightly and still looking at businesses and how they're set up, I think it is difficult to uh, not talk about money. You mentioned profit at the start, um, but it's not just profit. It's where they get their money from, where they get their investment from, their expenditure, and also their revenue and ultimately their profit. Chris, I know you want to talk um, a lot about this and give our listeners a bit of insight into how businesses are set up and how they work in this space. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Ben. But business is, is about money. But I think it's important to understand the role of money in business. It's very easy to think, oh, big business is about making profit. Profit is a kind of um, unclean thing I don't want to be associated with. But people who run businesses 
they don't, and entrepreneurs, they don't look at profit in that way. They see profit as a way of keeping score. How well are we doing as a business? But I think really to, to, to my mind, profit is, is the, the, the cherry on top, as it were. I want to look at the whole question of money that underlies profit. And going back to what you were saying, Ben, about you know, when, when um, you're, you're maybe starting a business or, or you've got a product or service you're trying to get out there, and I mentioned that you need to spend a lot of money marketing. When you start a business, the amount of money you need to get up and running is really quite considerable. It's quite a shock to some would-be entrepreneurs how much money they need to spend, for example, on, on marketing. So the way, the way I look at money is the starting point is, what is the money that a business uh, needs and uses? And the answer is, it's very simple. There are two types of funding, two types of money. There's debt, which we all understand. You go to a bank, you borrow the money, and you pay interest on, on the loan. But the other type of money is called equity, and it's represented by shares. So you might raise what's called equity funding by going to potential investors and saying to them, this is my business idea. Uh, do you want to invest in my business? And the reason why they might invest is because they will put their, their money to work in your business. They, they will buy shares in your business. And in return, they're hoping for two things. They're hoping for uh, growth. So if your business becomes successful and expands, then their, their, their slice of the cake will itself become more valuable. And the other thing they're, they're hoping for, but, but less so with a, with a startup, is dividends. So a company will pay dividends to its shareholders out of its profit. And I, I don't want to confuse people by making an unnecessary link. But one way of looking at that is uh, a lender provides debt and gets interest. Uh, an equity investor provides equity in return for shares, gets capital growth, but also hopes to get dividend income. So debt produces interest as income and shares produce dividend as income. So that, they, that for me is the starting point. So when I'm looking at a business, I ask myself, how is it funded? What is debt and, and what is equity? And, and the last, last thing I'll say on, on this split is um, businesses are very big users of debt. Uh, so you might look at the what's called the, 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 the capital structure of a business and think, my goodness, they borrowed a lot of money there. Two thirds of their capital is debt. That's quite normal in business because certainly under current tax regimes, the interest that you pay on debt is a business expense. And so it's deducted from your income and you only pay tax on the difference. So that's interest, whereas dividends paid on shares is paid out of taxed profit. So in a sense, paying dividends is much more expensive for a business than paying interest on debt, which is why businesses tend to favor debt over equity. One thing I wanted to come back to, and I'm trying not to make it too complex, because there's lots of things flying about the place at the moment. Hopefully you're, you're keeping up. And if not, feel free to rewind a little bit and uh, go over it again, because it is fantastically interesting um, stuff. But if you look at big businesses that have been around for uh, a long time, they're very well established. They've always been um, really big, whether it be law firms, whether it be professional service firms, they are looking at their revenues, they're looking at profit and quarterly, they'll be giving out sort of statements, especially if they're a, uh, a public uh, company. Um, however, the, the goals of 
expanding businesses or scale ups or startup businesses, people are more likely to look at their their growth. So even if they're eating loads of money because they've got investors that have driven lots of money into the business, those investors know they're not going to make profit for potentially years. However, what they're looking for is that they can utilize that investment and drive massive growth, whether it be user numbers, whether it be new subscriptions. And so the goals of business and what they're really focusing on do massively change over time from when they're in that kind of scale up period all the way through to when they're maybe more established and they're looking more at kind of the sustainable profit that Chris spoke about a little bit earlier on. Chris, one thing I wanted to talk about, and I actually mentioned it there, but I think you would be in a much better place to give more context around it, is private companies and why and how they become listed and go to public companies. Absolutely. So in in my own mind, I tend to think of uh, the life cycle of a company. So it's a startup. At that point, it's what's called a private company. Um, the, The shares are not traded on an exchange. And that means that if you're an equity investor in a private company, it's actually quite difficult to sell your shares because unless you can go out and find somebody who specifically wants to buy your shares in that business, uh, you can't really do it. So private companies tend to be owned by the people who start them, the people who work in them, and the people who, who provide the equity investment. Usually what happens if a company is successful, and just to say um, two out of three businesses go bust within the first five years. So equity investors who specialize in funding startups, they're called venture capitalists because they're putting in capital and it's a venture, it's, it's a bit of a risk. And the modern word for venture capital these days is, is private equity, because when you think about that, that's what it is. It's equity, equity funding, not debt, and it's provided privately. But assuming um, you're one of those business, one of those three businesses that does succeed, after five, 10 years, you might decide to go to the market. You might decide to list on an exchange and in that way become a public company. Uh, the shares in which are traded on a stock exchange. And this is a way for the original uh, private equity investors to get their money out, as it were. They funded that early growth, and then the company is now successful. It wants to expand. It wants to raise more more equity funding to expand for exactly the reason that, that, that you gave, Ben. And this links back to what we were saying earlier about competition. Businesses cannot stand still. You know, they need to keep on innovating. They need to improve their USP. They need to build those economic moats against competitors. So they're always seeking to expand, and and that costs money. So they they raise additional equity finance by listing on a stock exchange, and they they also raise additional uh, debt funding, often at that stage, by doing what's called a bond issue. A bond is just a form of tradable debt. So often public companies, apart from having loans from banks, will also have another type of debt funding called a bond. But loans and bonds are both, both types of debt. Amazing. So when a company becomes public, who's buying all of these shares? Really good question. And the answer is uh, investors who are called institutional investors because they're very big institutions. And on the face of it, they sound quite boring, actually. They're pension funds, they're insurance companies, they're fund managers that that run funds in, in which people and, and institutional investors themselves invest. But essentially, um, 
only about 15 to 20% of the shares traded on the London Stock Exchange are actually owned by retail investors, by individuals. The other 80, 85% are owned by these institutional investors. And when you think about it, in, in answer to the question, you know, where do they get their money from to buy these, these shares and, and also on the debt side bonds, the answer is from us. So once you are in employment, you'll be paying money into a pension plan so that when you retire, you've got money to, to live on. Uh, you'll also be taking out insurance for various things. Insurance companies will invest those premiums in the market and out of the return they get, they'll, they'll pay the claims. And you know, if you're wealthy enough in due course to invest money in the market, you might put that money through an individual, individual savings account, an ISA, you might put that money through an ISA into a fund which will then invest in the market. So these big institution investors, they actually get their money ultimately from us. What I'm interested in is the difference between back office and front office and the roles that the people listening to the podcast will be potentially going into. Could you talk a little bit around that? Absolutely. So just set this in the context of commercial awareness. We, we talked about commercial awareness having two aspects. One is mm-hmm. understanding the world of business generally and the other is understanding the business that you'll be joining. And front of house or front office and back office, these have meanings particularly in banking. Front office or front of house means the bit of the organization that deals with clients directly. So in the case of a bank, it'll be those people in the bank that deal directly with with companies and with investors. Back office is about doing a lot of the admin. So, for example, um, a bank will trade a lot in the markets and the settling of those trades will be done in the back office. But this language also translates into professional service firms. So professional service firms are made up of uh, people who specialize in the expertise of that firm. So in the case of law firm lawyers, in the case of accountancy firm accountants, in the case of management consultancies, management consultants. But there's also a back office, which uh, in professional service firms is called generally business services. And this is everything from accounting, technology, business development, research and know-how, human resources. And these are things that are not directly client-facing or client-related, but without them, a professional service firm can't function. And you find these back-office functions in in banks and in commercial organizations as well. So every company, bank, professional service firm will have, for example, an HR department. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say on this just in case you come across this terminology, there's something called um, enterprise resource planning, ERP, which is basically provided by software companies that help commercial organizations integrate their back offices through technology. And that's what ERP does. And just to give the context, I know you spoke about it being um, often used in banking, commercial investment banking space, but I think throughout my career I think it is sort of alluded to uh, in a number of different roles and actually it doesn't matter if you're front office or or, or back office that's completely up to you but it's just good to understand the plumbing of how a a, a business business works and the roles and how they are facilitating the the work that needs to to get done for their clients or on the the products that they sell but something like for instance a marketing role could be either more front office or 
or it could be more back office. So for instance, if you worked in marketing for an engineering firm, so uh, the engineers are making something um, and the marketing people are uh, marketing whatever they're, they're, they're making, um, that would be considered sort of a more back office function. However, if you're working in a marketing agency, um, whereas a marketeer, you'll be dealing with the clients and producing the, the work um, that is uh, making the money for the organization, for this agency, you'll be considered more like a front office role. So just sort of, I think just sort of understanding that concept and understanding the sort of the role that you're going into could be quite important, is important to commercial awareness. It's a really, really important point you make. And just to tie that into what we've been talking about. So this idea that there's uh, front office, back office, some are customer facing, some aren't. I think an important aspect of commercial awareness is treating whoever you are working for as a client. So if you join a law firm, a county firm, management consultancy, the partners in those firms are dealing directly with clients. So they have clients. When you start off, you won't be dealing directly with clients, but your clients will be the people in the firm that you serve, your supervisors. And similarly, if you're in a back office function, in an organization, your clients are the front office people. So the point about this is that whatever you do in an organization, you always have clients or customers. And I think an important part of commercial awareness is understanding what their needs are and ensuring that you're meeting their needs. And if you do that, as, as you're interviewing, as you're joining an organization, you think to yourself, who are my customers? Who are my clients? Even if they're within the organization, what can I do to make their lives easier? Because that's my role. And if you have that mindset, you'll succeed. Because in my experience, some of the most eminent people I've met in business are really humble when they're thinking about who are their clients? Who, who can they serve? And it's having that, that desire to, to make your clients' uh, roles, jobs, lives easier that I think drives the, the most successful people in business. Amazing. Really, really good point. We've talked a lot about a lot of different things for the last 20 minutes, Chris. Hopefully you found it really, really useful. Um, but Chris, if you could pull it all together into a two to three minute piece, how would you do it? What do people really need to know? I think that it's about opening your eyes to the world around you and how it's changing. And as we said at the outset, a lot of that change is created by business. And if you're interested in the world around you, then you will be interested in commercial awareness. And I'm, I'm not talking about big things here. You can walk down your high street and look in the windows of shops. And I'm afraid I do this. And you can say to yourself, how does this business make money? Who goes in there? What's their USB? I wonder what profit they make. I wonder how much capital they've got tied up in this. How much stock have they got? What, what are their cash flow issues? And, and I, I find businesses of all types and sizes inherently interesting. So Ben, when you and I were having lunch over the summer, I was sitting there thinking, how many people are there in this restaurant having lunch? How many staff have they got? Uh, how much stock do they have, have to have in order to provide the menu that they do? Are they making any money? So what I, what I suggest you do is just start thinking in these terms. And if you start thinking these terms about 
What is it in the world around us that is changing? Why is it changing? Why are businesses doing this? Is this a good product or not? If you just develop that mindset, you will become commercially aware. Yeah, 100%. There's always, I always think of the example of a restaurant called, a steak restaurant called Flatiron. Um, and it triggered in my mind when you were talking about that, because ultimately they do it a bit different in twofold, broadly speaking. First of all, they only do walk-ins. They don't do reservations. And so you go up with the people that you're going to be eating with and they said, we'll give you a text in half an hour, go away. Um, and that's when your table will be ready. And the second thing is they give you free ice cream for desserts. There's no desserts on the menus. So it kind of gets you thinking at that point. And instead of enjoying my steak and my ice cream, I'm kind of thinking in the kind of business mindset. The first one being, well, if you book tables, you kind of have to give people a two hour window, maybe at least for it. So the turnover isn't quite as quick because if people are booking, you're only getting maybe a two hour early dinner and then a two hour late dinner at most. Whereas if you do walk-ins and it's quite quick service and you've only got one course to do, there's a few little starters potentially, but realistically only one course. All of a sudden, instead of having two hour blocks with people, you can turn people around in possibly an hour, hour and 15 minutes, making you more money, making more tables available for you to get onto the next person rather than people hanging around buying a dessert, which are actually quite cheap relative to kind of a, a main and therefore make the restaurant less money if people are sitting there. So it's just using examples like that in your head and thinking, right, okay, they are doing things differently to pretty much every other restaurant in, in London or in anywhere else. Why are they doing this? And really thinking about that. And hopefully that example gives you a kind of an idea of the kind of thinking, the mindset that you can be going in with. And it's businesses across the, across the world, businesses across different sectors. There's always reasons why they're doing things. And some of them may not be very clever ideas. Some of them will go wrong. But really understanding what is behind those ideas or behind what you're seeing and what is maybe keeping the CEO up at night, what's getting them thinking is a, is a really good way to be thinking. I think the great thing about this is you can see commercial awareness in action at lots and lots of different levels. And that's what makes it exciting. And the final thing is, is that if you give away free dessert, people talk about it. People love freebies and people will talk about freebies. And so their marketing <laughs> strategy ties into all of this as well. Like, you know, they don't need to be all over your Instagram with posts and spending lots of money um, showing it to people because they know that people like myself or, or, or other people who've eaten at the restaurant will go, oh, I had a good steak, but the best thing was I got free dessert after as well. Um, but Chris, uh, thank you so much for giving your insights. I know you'll be back next month with me uh, going through the more typical episode where we'll be covering three to four stories. And that's how we'll be doing the uh, rest of the series. But for this, it's been absolutely wonderful, absolutely brilliant. Hopefully you've got loads of insights from Chris. And thank you very much for joining us again, Chris. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Many thanks. So we can't have a commercial awareness application special without bringing in some fantastic guests. And if you are a regular listener of the podcast, you'll realize this is actually the first time we're in series three now, and it's the first time we've had guests, so it makes it even more special. Um, but I am delighted to welcome Hannah and Jake to the podcast. And Hannah, I will start with you. Um, I saw you last week at Bright Network Festival doing some fantastic talks there. And you were showing me a brand new book, The Graduate Careers 
um, uncovered tools and insights from a former recruiter to demystify your job search. Tell me a bit about how you've been this summer and tell me a bit about this new book. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, well, first of all, so excited to be here, uh, yeah, especially after the, the buzz of the festival last week. Uh, so this is my first book um, and it gives practical advice aimed to help students and graduates work out what they want to do if they're confused about what career path they might want to go down. It helps people with applications, um, online tests, video interviews, virtual interviews, assessment centres. Sounds uh, really exciting and yeah, really great to have you uh, on the podcast. And I know you'll be talking through lots to do with commercial awareness and your top tips from the other side, a little bit like your book from the, the other side that maybe students don't always uh, always get to see. So really fantastic to have you here today. And um, the other person on the the pod as well, probably doesn't need an introduction to Brighton Network members. He's done so much uh, for us from uh, Brighton Network Academy, talks at different um, events. Um, but broadly speaking, you'll know him from his his books. Uh, he did a uh, series over the last few years and he's uh, moved it to an e-learning platform as well, specifically for aspiring city professionals, the Commercial Law Academy. Jake Shogger, welcome to the podcast. I'm honoured to be here. I thought I've been involved in Bright Network in so many different ways, but never on a podcast. And to be on the podcast with you and uh, Hannah and the commercial awareness guru himself, who, whose books helped me get a job, Mr. Chris Stokes, is, is a wonderful thing. So my first question um, on this is, from a recruiter's perspective, why are candidates being asked to demonstrate commercial awareness? And given, Hannah, you've been on that side and you've been a recruiter, it feels like a good question for you to kick off with. Yeah, thank you. So I would say that being commercially aware has always been somewhat important. I think in recent years, it is even more important. And it's actually one of the top skills that I talk about in my book, um, actually, about how yeah, it's so common that a lot of recruiters look for it. Now, it might mean slightly different things depending on the industry that you are keen to go into. But at a basic level, Having commercial awareness is, is, is basically about having business common sense. It's about understanding the industry that you are applying to, understanding the context, the major players, understanding what impacts uh, the business, what impacts their profits, what impacts their growth, um, and having opinions on it as well. So I think knowledge is, is certainly important, having an understanding of how things operate, uh, but it's also around having an opinion and having an understanding because they that may well get asked, uh, particularly interview stage, for you to, to talk a little bit more about your personal opinions um, and, and how you think things might develop. I also always have felt that commercial awareness, you should be looking at the business, as you say, having opinions on stuff. And actually, if you don't typically have opinions on something or you don't feel interested by the wider business sense beyond the role that you're going into. It may not be a career for you. What's your thoughts? I, I think that's exactly right. And it, it almost shouldn't feel like a huge chore because hopefully the career path that you've chosen, whether that's law, whether that's consulting, what, whatever it is, you will hopefully be interested in it and interested in the context. And so we'll talk about this probably in a little bit more detail. But if you can find a way to develop your commercial awareness that is actually genuinely interesting to you, it takes away the whole learning it just simply to tick a box, simply to pass an interview. It feels a bit less academic and a little bit more like you're actually learning for, for your own personal reasons as well as possibly to get a job. 
Um, and just to go back to the, the, the question that you asked earlier in terms of why firms are looking for it, I think there's a, there's a dual reason. One is to assess your suitability because, of course, firms want to hire people that make good commercial decisions. The other part of it, it is about assessing your motivation because your commitment to whatever career path you have chosen to go down ensuring that you are really committed, that you are really keen, you are really interested is really important because you will learn so much on the job. But actually having that passion, having that genuine interest, you can't teach that. Yeah, amazing. And also from Brightner at Research, we asked 100 employers what they value most in candidates and commercial awareness came forth. But Mm. first was passion for the business, which actually like you can't be passionate about business if you don't have that commercial awareness, which um, so they so tie together. It's just clearly what companies are looking for, just calling it slightly different things. Yeah. Um, Jake, we're going to come uh, come to you now. I have listened to a number of your talks. You've talked about um, the numerous uh, law applications you've done. You also the banking applications and a few others across different sectors. Um, but could you give me a little bit of a lowdown of how commercial awareness typically comes up in those application processes? Sure. I mean, as alluded to by Hannah, I think graduate employers tend to look for commercial interest as much as or if not more than commercial awareness. So it's not about being able to detail every single commercial, political or economic event that's happened over the last few months or years. Um, But that interest needs to come across that interest in the news, how businesses work and the broader commercial factors that can affect the firm and its clients. And with that in mind, there are various ways in which I was tested and students I've mentored have been tested when it comes to commercial awareness. So in one interview, the very first question I was asked, and it wasn't a specific commercial awareness or case study interview, was what does commercial awareness mean? And I had to come up with some kind of definition uh, and then I had to explain why commercial awareness was relevant to the firm's employees. You might be asked to give an example of when you've demonstrated commercial awareness, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more later on. You might be asked about a particular news story that's interested you or um, and in those types of situations, you can generally lead the interview and pick and prepare the story and do some reading around it. You might also be asked point blank about a specific event that's recently occurred. And that doesn't happen very often, but where there's something that's hugely in the news every day, really prevalent, then that type of story is fair game to ask you about. Now, however that kind of question is phrased, be ready to give an opinion and explain how that story or event can impact the firm and its clients. That will tie into your motivation and that will help to demonstrate your interest as well as your technical understanding. Now, you might also be presented with a commercial case study. And this is something that I know strikes fear in the hearts of many students. It was a thing I was the most nervous about going into my interviews. And these can be these can cover a whole range of things. So. Some of the ones I did centered on some kind of fictional client or business scenario, and I needed to demonstrate my understanding of business, financial, and sometimes legal concepts. Um, More specifically, I needed to apply a range of technical concepts. I needed to present on commercial risks and opportunities. I needed to assess different options for financing and structuring deals. I needed to talk about methods of growing a business. And I had to give an overview of how the firm could support its clients in different contexts. So one case study that came up centered on the role of a law firm during uh, an acquisition. Now, this last part required a real understanding of what the firm does and the role I was applying for. Don't lose sight of the importance of being able to discuss this, as if you can't explain what the role involves, then how can you expect to convince a firm that the role is for you? And it was all these considerations that led to me writing the initial draft of the commercial law handbook, because it wasn't stuff that I was taught 
during my degree. It was stuff that I picked up in pieces during open days and, and during research, but um, it's, it's a different type of knowledge. And actually, Chris Stokes's books were instrumental for me in learning a lot of this stuff. Great stuff. There's a lot of extra reading need to be uh, done over this, but I think that is absolutely, absolutely the way. Jake, a follow up question uh, on that. There's going to be a lot of uh, students out there, recent graduates saying, well, I've read the job description. I've read the employer website. I've even looked at their social media um, and it's all great. But how do I really know what goes on behind the scenes in a particular job or a particular business? Have you got any advice for students that are asking that question? Yeah, I felt that way the whole way through my degree. I went to dozens of firm presentations, but I still couldn't picture what me as a junior would be doing behind the scenes from a very early stage. And I think firms are really good at giving high level sweeping statements about what the role involves, but they don't give you the specifics. So one of the best ways to pick that up is to try and have conversations with people that have done it. If you've got someone in the year above you at university or someone you know through a social club or whatever, that's done a three week, five week, 10 week internship, chat to them about not just what they did but what they saw other juniors doing um hannah looking at the interview so jake did mention a few bits around what an interview or what parts of an interview could include commercial awareness um how should students before they go into an interview be preparing for that side of things so I think in order to effectively prepare for um, uh, an interview, and in particular, a commercially focused interview, there's almost two stages. One is the ongoing work, which everyone should be doing, which is the following the news, keeping up to date with news stories, um, keeping up to date with the type of firms that you are interested in, the industry that you're interested in. And if you can find a way to do that, that doesn't feel like work, that doesn't feel like you are revising, then that is much better. Listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, um, you know, form a commercial study group with friends, find interactive, enjoyable ways to continually build your commercial awareness so that it doesn't feel like really hard work. Amazing. And over to Jake, what's your thoughts on that? So I totally agree with Hannah. I think there are so many different sources you can use. You've got to find the ones that work for you. For me, one of my favorite ways of learning about how businesses operate was by reading books about the history of well-known businesses and their founders. Um, through these books, you don't feel like you're studying. You feel like you're reading sensational stories at times. But through that, you learn about common business challenges, strategies businesses use to take advantage of opportunities, the regulatory landscape, investment trends and how they negotiated the investment landscape and all of this great stuff. The first book I read in that context is called The Upstarts by a journalist called Brad Stone. And that charts Uber and Airbnb from the really early days of like knocking on doors and trying to acquire their first customers right the way through to them becoming these tech superstars. And then I read the same guy's book called The Everything Store about Amazon. Um, I read Shoe Dog written by the founder of Nike. And there are so many books like this where you don't feel like you're learning, but you actually learn loads and it's in context. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually um, taking your point on Shoe Dog uh, specifically, which is from, from the founder of, of Nike, um, you think you're going to learn about just sort of the business and just hear an inspirational story, how he went from, you know, sneakers all the way to this kind of, you know, multi-billion pound um, brand. Um, but actually a lot of it is about cash flow. And, you know, you if you don't do an accountancy degree or finance degree, you won't have much of a working knowledge of uh, financial statements, cash flow. However, by reading uh, Shoe Dog, 
you will have like it put in a business context for you the stuff that you will need to know going into the to the business world and it's probably a little more interesting than uh, going back and doing three month accountancy course or something like that um, and you get what you need jake back to you just on one piece is around demonstrating commercial awareness um, if they haven't really been involved in the business world i know you've given some sort of examples but can you just reassure students that going into an interview or an application process or even the working world if they haven't stepped foot into like a, a formal office they're going to be okay sure and I got asked this question outright again in the same interview where I had to define commercial awareness. They said to me, when have you demonstrated it? And I panicked for a second. But you may well have demonstrated commercial awareness, even if you haven't previously worked for a business or set up a side hustle or something like that. So if you're asked this question, try to draw analogies between the fundamental processes that businesses follow and some of the roles that you've taken during your previous experiences, even if they're totally unrelated to business, at least at face value. So if you are on a society exec and you've arranged a university ball, then you will likely have been involved in a whole range of, of great business processes. You will have created a product, which is the ball. You will have branded that product. So deciding which theme to go with and how to reflect that theme in you know, the entertainment, band, decorations, that kind of stuff. You will have had to set the ticket price and, and work around budgets. You've got to make sure that ticket sales and sponsorship will at least cover your costs of, I don't know, hiring a venue, catering, entertainment, that kind of thing. You'll be involved in marketing, so trying to persuade people to buy tickets. Even if you're doing that as a lecture shout out, that's still a form of marketing. There might be a customer service element, so responding to questions from prospective attendees. There might be a recruitment aspect if you're recruiting a junior executive committee to help out. And you'll be managing others throughout, so making sure team members are fulfilling their roles and coordinating everything on the day. So when you think about it like that, it is a lot like setting up a business. Amazing. Over to you, Hannah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's it's such a common concern that I hear from my coaching clients or from people that I meet at events is how can I get a job if I haven't got work experience? And what I would say is it's so common for people to have not done formal paid internships before then going on to get a training contract or get a graduate program at a city firm. I myself had never worked in an office before. So I got a graduate programme with the team 13, 14 years ago. And um, yeah, I had never worked in an office before, but I had done a lot of extracurricular. I had had a lot of um, summer jobs, part time jobs. And I was able to talk about those in interview and talk about my transferable skills. So I think that the most important thing is being clear on the experience that you have done, what you've gained from that, how you developed your commercial awareness and commercial knowledge through that, and also having that broader interest and, and commercial awareness. But um, yeah, I, I think it's something that a lot of students really um, do panic about, understandably. Amazing. Really appreciate those insights. We're almost out of time on this part of it. But before we go, I wanted a final quick top tip from both of you. Jake, we'll start with you. For me, trying to cram commercial awareness right before an interview isn't an ideal approach, as Hannah touched on earlier, as you'll likely only pick up a shallow understanding of the topics you read about. Now, if your understanding is shallow, you'll probably have little interest in what you're reading about and discussing, and that won't come across well. I've got this analogy. Think about the first few pages in a dense novel. It's harder to maintain your interest at the start as you don't yet understand the context or the history of the characters. 
It's the history and the developments that draw you in over time, meaning those books tend to become far more gripping once you understand how the sections you're reading fit into the broader context of the book. And I think it's the same with commercial awareness. A new story and a commercial concept is not generally interesting in isolation, but once you understand how the pieces fit together and the impact this can all have on firms and clients and industries, you'll likely find it a lot more interesting and become more confident talking about it. So get in the habit of building your commercial awareness on a regular basis. Even five minutes a day can make all the difference. And you'll be surprised at how much more interested you become in the news and in commercial concepts and all that kind of stuff. I absolutely love that. I've heard you speak probably about 15 times. I've never heard that start of a book, sort of getting into the book um, relationship with commercial awareness. I think that's absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for that, Jake. Um, And Hannah, one final top tip from you. I really am also in agreement with the little and often thing. I think if you sit down and try and do commercial awareness for four hours, two hours, you know, it feels like studying. Um, So if you can find a way to process it in a way that you find interesting and engaging, that's um, all the best. In particular, I would say what can really help is finding other people to discuss it with. So setting up a kind of buddy system or a commercial awareness group. I have a couple of clients that have done this in the past and it can really help, again, bring it to life a little bit. You might agree to arrange and meet every uh, for half an hour, every week, an hour, every two weeks, where you either discuss a news story or discuss a particular firm. You could discuss their challenges, their opportunities. Um, And there's no right or wrong. It's not about teaching or lecturing. It's about discussing and uh, almost bouncing ideas off other people. If you do set up something like this, that is almost a regular study group or a regular commercial interest group, this is also something that you can put on your CV. And it's something a lot of recruiters really value is that proactivity, that setting up something. It doesn't mean that you're an expert, but you can be the initiator I think that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, uh, joining us and giving all of your fantastic insights. Hopefully everyone um, at home's taken a lot of notes um, and it will help them as they go both into the application process. But I think there's loads in there if you're starting in the working world as well. Um, there's a few actions for you guys if you want to find out more and uh, get more brilliant insights from both Jake uh, and Hannah you can search for graduate careers uncovered fantastic book that's just come out you also got if you type in jake jake shogger you can also find his books but you can also find him on the commercial law academy as well and you both have a joint coaching program as well is that right yeah so jake and i have been working together for a number of years now so we have a joint private uh, career coaching program where we work uh, one-to-one with people who want a bit more support and we offer a range of services amazing that was the wonderful jake and hannah thank you very much again for giving up your time and uh, have a good rest of your days thanks so much thanks so much for having us I hope you enjoyed that episode of Thinking Commercially. It was brilliant to have Hannah and Jake join us for this episode and also the wonderful Chris being as wonderful as he always is. Do check out LinkedIn and Instagram for more great content. And until next month, have a fantastic time and see you soon.